This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge sites, over a billion people visit it every day, but what's it like working there? I talk with product designer Will Harding to find out. Most interesting thing is this is the first job I've been at as a great person where I, where I don't see like that there's a timeline to it. That there's just so many possibilities of of interesting challenges in the future and and the way the world will change, we will have to adapt. Adaptation's the name of the game. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I really have to shout out how Design Live. I spoke at How Design Live this past week um, on Friday, May 20th, and I have to tell you, I was blown away by the reception that I got. Got some really great questions, really great turnout for the event. Thanks to everybody that came out. Thanks to everybody that asked such great thought-provoking questions. And I mean, even days after I had finished presenting, people were coming up to me thanking me for actually doing this. So that really feels good to me to know that you all have have really supported what I'm trying to do with getting out the word about black designers in the industry. Thanks to all the new listeners, hopefully, that are listening to this uh, this podcast today. So again, just big, huge thanks. I really had a great time at How Design Live. It wore me out like I am past tired but really grateful and really thankful for the opportunity. So just had to say that before we get into anything else. So let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp for marketing automation and email newsletters. MailChimp makes it pretty easy for businesses to not only send better email, but to make something beautiful and connect directly with customers. Take a look at what you can do at inspiration.mailchimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's really where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're holding steady still at 35 patrons for a combined total of $247 a month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone who has pledged your support and appreciation for the show through Patreon. It really does mean a lot. It really, really helps keep the show going on a regular basis. So if you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and sign up. Pledge level started just $1 per month and it's a really great way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I'm talking with Rich Holland, the principal and design director at Colab. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Rich Holland, and I am the Principal and Design Director at Colab. Talk to me about what Colab does, because 
I'm, of course, very interested because your business has been around for a very long time. It's really kind of stood the test of time in my eyes when I think about design firms. But, but talk to the audience about what Colab does. At its basics, Colab is a, is a brand strategy communications firm. So that works entirely at this point for the past eight years or so on social value projects. We're in community and we're working with cities and municipalities and nonprofits and and corporations as well that are deeply committed to genuinely connecting people, to building loyalties and moving and advancing the human experience in community. So you say for the past eight years, it's been Mm -hmm. just about these kind of these social value projects. Why the shift? To take a look at the shift, let me, uh, I'll have to tell you a story. So it goes, we started the, the business and I'm terrible with numbers. It was about 28 years ago now. We're turning the corner on 30 and I'm in denial. <laughs> so I started this thing up in Boston and we hit the ground running pretty quickly where we started working with some, some pretty large corporations and we never actually got to be a big organization ourselves. We stayed kind of small, but we're getting infused into some of these sort of fairly progressive brand uh, revamping and new pushes for organizations like Motorola, Gillette, that kind of thing, ConAgra Foods. And We'd been doing that for quite a while, and because we were small enough organization and our profit was high enough, we got to to split our time up where we were doing a we were spending a certain amount of our time, call it half the time, doing this corporate work, and the other half we got to do things that were interesting to us or more interesting to us, like help do some work in communities. Uh, some of the earlier work that we were doing in the mid 80s was for AIDS Action Committee in Boston. So we had the ability to, we had the flexibility and the budget to be able to work both sides of the community table, the for-profit universe and the universe that, that took care of the community specifically. About eight years ago, I got involved with the Human Rights Institute here in Connecticut they came to us to do a, a fairly simple project, right? They were doing their yearly conference on human rights issues. We had no idea which one it was going to be. They were just popping down to, to chat with us. And, you know, so I imagine that it was going to be about Darfur or, or some of the stuff that was going on in China at the time. And at the beginning of the meeting, they drew a quick diagram for us so that we could understand what was going on. They track human rights violations across about 169 or so countries around the globe, and they score them, they rank them. So to simplify the rankings for a second, let's say at the base it's zero, so so no human rights violations whatsoever. Then it pops up at a line of one. You know, so you're you're starting to get kind of noteworthy and and something you should be paying attention to. And then it peaks at two, right? So one is sort of the midway point. They drew two lines for me. One line started at about one and a half and went straight across. It went straight across a number of years. One line started at zero and then spiked really quickly up to two. And they were curious which we were most concerned about. Being a, a, a graphic person, I was a visual person, I was most concerned about the thing that changed most rapidly, where you could actually see it and feel it. I imagine it's sort of like catching G-force, you know, the thing hits you in the face and you know that it's there. 
so I was like, yeah, clearly this thing that's spiking up and going nuts is what I'm most concerned with. And they, they mentioned that, yeah, most people would be, but that's not where the big problems are. What happens with the conditions that spike so fast is within that time frame, the people that are having these experiences have a mental memory, have a physical memory, a community-wide memory of times that were better, times that were without these violations. And they're motivated as an organized cell to move back to a time where things were better. What happens with the flat line is you're crossing generation after generation. And once you do that once or twice, you lose the memory or the consciousness of what it was like to live outside of those conditions. And then it becomes that much more difficult to bring things back. And that was kind of an eye opener for me that really what we're talking about is, is urgency and a thing that we can't keep deferring until later to deal with, that uh, like any other kind of health, the health of the human condition from a political standpoint or an economic or social standpoint needs to be addressed sooner than later. As it turns out, the conference that we were going to be talking about was about human rights in the United States human rights issues that we're facing here in this city, in this country rather, and that that was the most pressing topic to address that year. As I was uh, driving around for the first couple of weeks of working on this, I started thinking to myself, boy, if there's this level of urgency, you know, if can we keep just doing working for social good part-time? What are the opportunities that we're missing to actually make a difference when we step out of that and start selling elevators and cell phones again? Do we need as an organization to make a commitment to be all in, to, to put as much as we can into shortening the time that it takes to affect change? I think it was one of those conditions that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And one day as I was pulling into the parking lot, I didn't have much more of a plan than this, but I called staff in and said, let's wrap up the projects that we're working on for these companies. And we're gonna go on a kind of new adventure and make a commitment to the things that we believe in. That's how we got doing what we're doing. So what are some of these types of, of uh, social value projects that you're doing? I know you mentioned you work for different cities and municipalities, but what yeah. specifically are these types of projects? Well, there are projects on, for example, we work with about 16 to 20 youth groups throughout the state on asset development, which are the building blocks that youth need to remove the barriers in front of them and to be healthy and make positive decisions in their lives. And some of those measurements are like whether the community values the youth, positive role models, that kind of thing. And it's a, it's, there are 40 points and let's try and get as many kids feeling connected to those 40 points. And you see the, the shift in them. You see the sort of the positive attitudes and you see more connectedness to the community as you start building these building blocks. So we do a, a tremendous amount of work around that where we're running, we're running youth groups, we're helping them uh, develop a voice. Uh, rather, we're running meetings within youth organizations where we help students create a voice, where we help them develop a means of talking to each other and becoming better better peer advocates. 
and through that, and we use graphic design as one of the tools for engagement, for, uh, for empowering them to speak for themselves. So we're working in, in the youth environment that way. We do a fair amount of, of sort of cultural and economic development work. We're helping getting downtowns populated and, and, and bringing commerce and magnifying commerce uh, in the communities that we, that we live. A lot of arts and culture work. We do a tremendous amount around education. Recently, there was in actually the town that I, that I lived in, to give you a, a really good example of this, there was a, an issue around appropriated, misappropriated appropriated Native American um, imagery in the sports mm-hmm. teams. They were the, the Hall Warriors and, you know, they had this Native American head with, you know, the, they, they were doing everything wrong, basically. Mm-hmm. And the community had dug in their heels on this. Well, the youth in the community hadn't, which is a thing that I notice all the time. The, uh, the sort of the spiritual and social evolution, this generation of youth that are coming up is is something remarkable and noteworthy. So, so these, the youth in the community, um, in these schools had the cultural fluency to recognize that, that this was an issue and this wasn't something that they believed in. And they organized themselves and they brought in uh, Native American speakers to, to help address the appropriation problems that were inherent in, in what the school brand was. I mean, it got down to the group, the kind of glee club within the school was called the reservation, you know? So it was, oh wow, yeah, it was, <laughs> it got bad, you know? Yeah. And certain members of the community just didn't want to give up on that. It was part of, mm. they didn't see the problem or didn't want to see the problem or didn't want to see the hurt that it was causing. And so our job was, after being actually rather vocal about it through social media, et cetera, we were invited in by the Board of Ed to, to take it on. And I think there was a piece of it that was like, OK, you're going to have a big mouth about this, then come fix the problem that you're complaining about. <laughs> so we took that on. We worked with a group of athletes and parents and, and administrators and walked through a process of reconsidering what warrior meant within the school context taking a look at what the attributes of warrior would be that could be applied to the people there without having to bring a shorthand icon along to to make the point. So we got to deconstruct it with them, let them own the attributes, and then together put it back together in a symbol that worked for the community. Doing that kind of work is deeply rewarding. Mm-hmm. Because from the very first sketch you could see, and, and you know, when you start doing it, it's tentative because folks had been working, had been living with this logo for decades and decades. You know, it's been yeah. who they were. So they get scared, you know, they get, of course, they're going to get scared of letting go of this thing that's familiar. And what's this new territory that, that we're going to go to is going to mean as much as this means to us. And to see them start actually owning that themselves and feeling a kind of possessiveness of this new of this new brand and this new identity and wanting to share it and and wanting it to grow outside of just the sports dynamic but become something that's meaningful to to the the drama club and to all of the other aspects of the school was it was super rewarding and, you know, that's the kind of work that we do. Some of it is, is short burst work like that. 
Some of it, like uh, work that we do for one of the youth service bureaus in Middletown, we've been working in partnership for, oh gosh, since practically the beginning for about seven years now. So I want to go back to kind of, I guess the one thing that I'm really interested in is just how long you've been able to stay in business. I have my own small studio firm, I guess you could call it more of a studio. I've been around for about seven years. And like you said, Colab has been around for 28 years. What would you say has been the secret to your business's longevity? Okay, well, it's been be good to people. If things go wrong, be the first one to own the responsibility for it. Back your vendors every step of the way and treat them well. And for me, it's been a lot of treat financial success as a byproduct. It's, uh, we make our commitment to doing, doing right by our customers all the time mm-hmm. and uh, treating ourselves fairly so you don't want to undervalue yourself because then you can't treat your customer well, you know, because if you're always lowballing or, or coming in with the smallest possible budget to, to be quote unquote competitive, the net result of that is you're constantly going to be staring at the money and staring at the time. And that gets to me in the way of uh, submitting to the work and what needs to get done. That's really what it is to me. Just we concentrate on doing good work. We also concentrate on not boxing ourselves in. For me, it has never, ever been about the object that we deliver. It's been about the process that we go through with the client or in this case, with the, in, in the newer case, with the community or with the organizations, with the partnerships that matter most, that we end up with a quality product, that we end up with stuff that, you know, that wins awards or, you know, that satisfies a certain design sensibility for us is the inevitable outcome of having honed our craft. The part that actually I think has the most value is leading folks through a process where they understand themselves better, where they can represent themselves better. And that's that's applicable not just to community work, but I think it's applicable to corporate work as well. There's nothing like a big corporation getting itself, where the mm-hmm. folks internally have a lens where they can actually really understand what their daily motivation is about. And to me, you stay focused on that and the work comes to you, the opportunities come to you. There's one other thing that I, that I think I want to add to that. It's uh, f- one of the things that we think about a lot here. It's less about what we get and what we get to offer. So we're in a constant state of saying yes to as much as we possibly can. If someone needs us to talk to talk to a networking group with there, we'll talk, we'll present, we'll share ideas. If folks need us to run a workshop, we roll up our sleeves and say, heck yeah, let's do it. Let's make this thing happen. And and we find that that, that process of just saying yes to to being helpful goes uh, goes a long way to to the referral line, right? That folks are therefore constantly wanting to come back to us. We're in a state of creating a lot of goodwill in that regards. Nice. I like that that statement of creating goodwill. And and like you said, you know, the more that you're out there helping, the more people know who you are, what it is you're doing and how you can help out. Sure. 
let me share, uh, if, if you don't mind, along those threads, some of what we did when we shifted the business to working on the social value work. One of the first things that we did after, while we were wrapping up the stuff that we were wrapping up and, you know, kind of panicking a little bit <laughs> because, because if we were going to do it, I needed to let the clients know that this is actually what we're doing so that we actually couldn't backpedal out of that without seeming like, you know, we were cowards. So one of the first things that I did was I met the communications and outreach director at the Connecticut Association of Nonprofits. Now, this is someone who's part of an organizational group that ran workshops that did a whole bunch of work to help nonprofits in the area be as the best that they can be. So we brought Melissa in right away. We hired her, made her our communications and outreach director. And with that, we got intensive lesson in how these organizations and how these municipal groups, how folks who have a lobbying interest actually function on a day-to-day basis. We got a really deep lens in the conflicts that happen within these organizations between the mission and the daily programmatic work. We got a, a really deep lens in board structure and board influence of outcomes. And, and we also got connected to, to the trust that she had built up over the years in this community, in this sector. And, and it affected our ability to, for example, start doing workshops on branding while we were learning about what the specific conditions are in doing community work. Mm-hmm. So it helped quite a bit in the transition to go from what we knew and how that was useful to this new sector that we were diving into and, uh, while we were building our own internal capacity to, to be effective in a different way. So tell me, what's a typical day like for you at CoLab? Because it sounds like you and your staff are working on a lot of really deep, interesting projects. But for you, what's an average day like? Let's see. An average day is I come in in the morning and I make sure that all of the the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. So I make sure that the that the money is moving the way it needs to move because we've got to make payroll and we've got to pay uh, rent on this groovy space. And I make sure that 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 new projects are moving forward and that clients are onboarded. And then I spend a lot of time working with staff. We kick the tires on projects. We have a big war room with a 16-foot porcelain magnetic whiteboard. So we spend a lot of time on that. I love this thing because you could write on it with with the dry erase stuff. You could throw things up with magnets. It's a wonderful tool to capture ideas. And so we spend a lot of time brainstorming talking things through, looking over each other's shoulders on computers, reading briefs, challenging briefs, running out to client meetings and doing some deep learning together. And I spend a fair amount of my time also problem solving. So if there is, which by the way is my least favorite part of the job, the problem solving and the bookkeeping, I'm more attracted to to the fire starting than I am to, to the problem solving. Yeah, the problem solving is what I, I like to do the least here. It, it's sort of a, a mechanical process for me, and it's like doing homework, you know. So, so 
we might get a project in and there's some logistical things that need to be hit, you know, so we need to figure out something about moving an audience from this position to that other position. And that's well and good. And that's part of our job, right? The other part of our job, though, is while solving the problems to be attuned to these opportunities to affect something greater than what might have been initially presented or, or what I call the, the presenting condition. And the part of the job that I get excited about is to, while we start working on a thing, to recognize that opportunity, that piece of insight that actually changes the universe, the universe that we're working on in a manner that you just had no idea was even on the table when you first started working on the thing. As far as a point of excitement, that's what I get charged with, charged about the work that we do. It's that, that opportunity where something becomes so clear to you that it becomes the direction regardless of what it was that you thought that you needed to solve in the first place. In your bio, you mentioned that Fast Company named you one of the 11 most generous designers working on social value. Yeah. And I think from, from what you've illustrated, I can tell why that is, is super important for you. But how can other designers get involved in this kind of work? First thing, I think that there is no way that you're ever going to really do work in, social, in the social space, in the social value space, without working for nonprofits. So you got to learn that system. And there's no way you're going to do it without working for government in, certain, in, in a certain capacity. We're taking a look now at what the conditions for positive social impact are. And we're taking a look at what are the pieces that need to come together to make that happen, to actually create positive impact. And we're finding that government relations and municipal relationships are our key part to that formula. Relationships with funders and foundations, key part of that. And relationships with nonprofits, very important. And I cannot underscore the importance of developing a good relationship in the social venture sphere and with corporations as well that have a solid footing in social responsibility. Ultimately, what we're going to, what we do at our best is figure out how all these pieces play together and create connections within these sort of pillars within the community, these pillars of change within the community itself. A lot of designers kind of know the, the relationship between corporations and they can extend that to what the relationship is with the social sector, with the social enterprise startup sector as well, because, you know, those are familiar territories. But the nonprofit universe really is kind of a different world in a lot of ways. You're talking about folks that are grant funded and whose work tends to be funded based on an understanding of outcomes before, long before you actually start doing the work. So you have to develop, it helps to get to know that sector intimately so that you could develop the trust to shift the end posts midstream in a project. So one way that we think is, is a useful way of doing that is pretty much every community has an association of nonprofits, that there is some kind of umbrella group that runs it and that shares resources, that shares some lobbying efforts, that, run, that puts on workshops and, and lecture series. It's sort of like the AIGA 
of nonprofit for nonprofits. And I would highly recommend becoming a part of that and learning as much as you possibly can about this other universe and what the mechanics are within it. And I think that you'll also find that while you're learning about it, you're going to get to share who you are. And that's the best kind of, of networking and trust building that's going to help you be successful in this field. It's hugely unusual that you're going to, that I've seen that folks get to work on the big hairy projects without developing that sort of deep trust from understanding where these organizations are coming from in the first place. We can't just go in and, and talk from this sort of inspired lens that we can speak from so readily without having an understanding of the capacity and the conditions that these organizations operate under. Right, right. Let's go back a little bit. Sure. Before you started CoLab, you went to Boston University. Mm -hmm. I remember I watched a video, I think you did it at uh, AIGA Gain Conference a few years back. Okay. And you were mentioning that you had this kind of unconventional path into design. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would say I actually never studied design per se. I went to... Well, to go really way back, when I first went to, to BU, to Boston University, I was in the pre-med program. My family, my family came from Haiti. Uh, essentially, um, uh, I was technically uh, not the most legal immigrant. And uh, we left at a time when things were kind of ugly and pretty violent down there. So when we came here, there were some aspirations about um, what a... What a black person can be when they grow up, right? And designer wasn't even on the radar, you know? None of that stuff was on the radar. I was always sort of visually inclined. I painted a lot, I did a lot of photography. I was always making stuff, but that wasn't treated as a, as, as a real sort of thing that you can do, you know? There were, two, there were two occupations. You could be a lawyer or you could be a doctor. <laughs> and I chose doctor. And I think that I chose doctor when I was four and they held and my family held me to that. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, when I graduated, my option when I graduated from high school, my option was you're going to be a doctor. So I went off to six year to this uh, medical to this pre-med program at BU and got a taste of, of my first serious philosophy class and in com combination with some of the psychology classes that I was taking uh, at the time, my brain started to activate in a way that it had never before. That all of these things that I feel like that I'd been working on in my life, you know, the stuff that seemed like I was just sort of water bugging from one idea to another where it's like, oh, I'm painting now. Oh, I'm doing this kind of crazy photo project. Oh, sculpture, what's that all about? Oh, this month I did nothing but, you know, work on these little novelettes. You know, all of the piece, oh, and I shouldn't even forget my guitar. It's like, oh, guitar. This, this will keep <laughs> me busy for a while. <laughs> you know, look at what I'm learning here. When I started looking at, at the work that I was doing in philosophy and, and this work on getting empirical with the meaning of things, all of these explorations that I that I'd been doing throughout my you know still young life, right, um, all came kind of crashing together and made sense to me. And once they made sense, it's that same thing that I mentioned uh, earlier uh, 
uh, around the human rights stuff, once the thing makes sense and in the the clarity uh, presented itself, um, there was no going back. So the work that I did at BU um, after that that first semester of 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 insight and dreariness <laughs> was was an interdisciplinary major where uh, we where I just kind of bopped throughout the the various schools in a make up your own major kind of way. And there's a thing that I was that I was committed to to understanding about about uh, aesthetics and empiricism that a group of just really brilliant people led me around to do the exploration. From there, I went to the Museum School of Fine Arts where I focused on media, uh, which is film and, a lot of film and video work. What I was essentially doing is taking all of those interests, all of the things that I had learned and figuring out how to put it into a visual narrative form. And I maintain that space where all these components sort of come together decades later is still what I do every day. And once you graduated, did you immediately have the idea that you wanted to start your own firm? No, I had no idea. I had no idea. I got a job working at the world's coolest publishing firm. They're out of business now. They were called Ligature. And okay. they produced textbooks. And back then... The way books were produced, the editorial team, which was made up of educators, would generate the, the content, pass it on to a designer who would do the layout. An art research department would offer a couple of selections of intellectually relevant pieces of art that would support the content, and the designer would choose from the sort of prepackaged set of offerings. And that's how the book was put together. Our job was to do layouts. This place had a, had a sort of very different idea about how they were going to, to approach this. They hired designers that had a strong sense of narrative and a strong sort of multidisciplined understanding of the world. And they put them in the room with editors who were educators who really cared about selling ideas to students. And these two people sat together with the content, with the pedagogy that needed to be expressed, and they sorted it out together. It didn't come from editors to design, and it wasn't a scenario where designers did a layout and then pushed it to editors and said, this is the amount of space you have to work with. You know, it was a, a real genuine collaboration. It felt like what it felt like when I was still in school, you know, mm -hmm. contrary to how I heard other people's experiences were in agencies and firms in Boston, where they sounded like they were just in a grown up space. I just felt like I was still just sort of extending the kind of awe and wonder that I experienced while I was in school. And I would say that that was that for me, that was the perfect job. While doing this, I developed a really good relationship with the printer there. And it was less than a year, I'm going to say six months, nine months into this. He connected me with this freelance opportunity. He's like, hey, you know, a client came to me and they need a couple of brochures to, to be designed. Are you willing to do them on a freelance basis? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll 
give anything a shot. You know, I've, I've got some time. Well, this thing turned out to be, it was for a big corporation and it was redoing their HR department and it turned out to be a monster project and there was no way that I would be able to ever do this in the time frame that I had while having a full-time job. So I resigned from the publishing firm and started my own thing out of my dining room right on the spot. And 28 years later, here you here are. Here I am. <laughs> Still kind of functioning the same way, but not in my dining room. <laughs> have you had any like mentors or anyone that have really helped you out along the way? The people that have helped me out along the way have, I mean, there were a couple of professors that were just amazing that I'm still in contact with. And they challenged me to, it was really interesting. I, I still think to about the language that she used. Her name is Jane Hudson. Um, and uh, she was a, a video instructor at the museum school. And we're still in touch now, many, many years later. And she would take a look at what I was doing and she would sort of lean over into, into my ear and, and make statements like, you seem like you're trapped in your skin. You need to get out of your skin. And I'd have no idea what the heck she meant whatsoever because I'm just editing footage, you know? <laughs> and over time of receiving messages like that, I started getting where she was coming from. I started getting that that I was sort of bound by this idea that I needed to solve this problem or I needed to create this mechanical execution when really what my job is was even then was to kind of get out of my skin and expand this thing to be something that could be sort of universally appreciated as opposed to specifically appreciated. So I would say that Jane is certainly one of my, my most the mentor that I think of in the traditional mentor sense the most because mm -hmm. she taught me how to be real in the thing that I do. The other mentors that I have are more this sort of team of peer advisors who know me really, really intimately and coach me and in a reciprocal way. You know, I, I look at them in a similar way and advise them as well. We are in the process right now at Colab of switching the status of, of our corporation. We're looking at becoming a, a B corporation, which is basically a mission-based organization where mission becomes part of our corporate structure. And in the process of doing that, we're taking a step further than what's required. We're actually going to operate ourselves very much like a nonprofit. We're building a board of advisors for whom we are responsible we're creating a very clear mission statement that talks about our commitment to, to the social space and to building a community by genuinely connecting people. And we're bringing people on board that are great advisors who will keep our feet to the fire and keep us true to what we say we want to do. What is the thing that kind of gives you purpose? Like what keeps you motivated to do all this great work? The outcomes. It's, to me, giving is like a drug, right? And I don't know if you've ever been a part of, of doing sort of radical giving, but it actually, and we've been reading a fair amount about it here around philanthropy, et cetera, and not that I believe that we're philanthropists per se, but it actually creates a kind of chemical condition in your brain that wants you to do more. And I think the 
seeing the positive outcomes of putting good things out into the universe and seeing people benefit from it. Seeing a kid in Middletown when we'd first started doing work was in a bad way. He was, you know, constantly getting in trouble. The, you know, the likelihood that he was going to end up in, 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 you know, in a state of incarceration was pretty high. And to see him evolve and to see him be clear about the things that entered his life that allowed him to excel and allowed him to get the job that he wanted and to live a, a life without these obscene restrictions around who he could be. It, it's a kind of reward, man, that however minor your role is in that, you, I can't turn away from it. Mm-hmm. What's the best piece of advice that you've been given over the years that you've really been able to kind of put back into? It could be business advice or it could be personal advice. I got a couple of pieces, I, I would guess. My dad pointed out to me when I was young, there's no point in expecting any kind of favorable outcomes in disagreements about color and politics. So if you like this particular blue and somebody doesn't like it, the odds of convincing them are not going to happen. You know, so let it go. (laughs) And pretty much the same about politics. You could state what you need to state and be clear in your perspective. But our goal is not about conversion, our goal is about truth. And, and that to me has been the most practical advice that I've ever been given. And it's a piece of what I do all day long. And it's in a way how I check myself, you know? Yeah. And if you even think about this political season, right? I mean, everybody's getting kind of heated on every step of the way. And I find myself getting heated sometimes. And what I realize that I need to do at that point is talk about things not with the desire of changing anybody's perspective, but the desire to talk about where my heart is, where my spirit is on something, and just let that be what's out there. I got you. That makes a lot of sense. So you're a family man, from what I remember from reading your bio. I'm a big family man. You have five sons? Five boys. Five boys. Wow. Are they interested in design? Like, Do they want to follow in dad's footsteps? Well... Uh, my oldest son, he's a fine artist, and I think that he generally thinks that this is not really art, which he's right. It's not. But he's a painter, so he's not doing this. And actually, remind me to get back to that because i got a cool story about that. Um, okay. <laughs> and uh, my other son is a, is a computer scientist. He's in college right now. I am in the next couple of weeks running around with my third boy who's interested in biomedical engineering and social science and and social value work as well. You know, so he's interested in in diversity work. So that's a lot of the work that he's going to a lot of the course of study that he's going to be taking on. My 10 year old the other day shared with me that his plans to take over the business and work with me. Nice. Yeah, he's totally psyched. And, you know, he thinks that uh, that my job is pretty darn cool. We had a, a really cool conversation recently about lemonade stands and what the value of giving free water away is. And, uh, mm. yeah, yeah, he was putting together a lemonade stand. And he's like, well, why aren't people stopping? It's like, well, I think it's because you just want something from them, don't you? Do you really care all that much about giving them a lemonade or do you want to make money? He's like, I want to make money. So it's like, well, why don't we try this? Why don't we see what you can give people that doesn't involve asking them for money? Give first. Let the lemonade that you're selling be the, op- be the alternate option 
to uh, what it is that you're willing to give because you care about people in the summer walking around hot. And he mm-hmm. did that. He gave out free water and sold like a ridiculous amount of lemonade since then. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, <laughs> so get this kid thinking in terms of social enterprise right early. And God only knows what the six-year-old's going to do. Are you where you kind of wanted to be at this stage in your life? Wow. Am I where I wanted to be? Like if you think back to your childhood. Yeah, if I think. What you wanted to do. If I think back to my childhood, I had a vision that if I were there now, I would not be happy. So I think that I'm much happier and certainly much more contented than anything that I could have possibly imagined. I imagined a life that moved a lot faster I imagined a life that was about jet-setting places and, you know, in this sort of cowboy way of living. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that now, it's untethered, you know? And there's something for that's going on now for someone who actually still loves that, who loves this idea of, of floating and making things expansive that also feels grounded. And I can't imagine not having the grounded piece of it. You know, so I think I'm doing a heck of a lot better and a lot more satisfied than anything I could have imagined even, you know, 10 years ago. Who else is out there in the field right now that you admire? Like, is there any any other designers or anyone that's kind of doing social good work like you're doing? I'm just in love with Don Hancock at at Firebelly. What they stand for and their generosity to community, their openness to community, it's just really, really, really beautiful. And their work is also exceptional uh, on top of like, the, you know, not just the space where they come from, but the, the product that they deliver brings a lot of honor and inspiration to the sector. Gabby Brinks at Tomorrow Partners, every time I've been around her, every time I've heard her speak, I've been like, yeah, I totally get where she's coming from. She cares about data. You know, I mean, she like deeply cares about data. And frankly, early on at the early stages of this sort of design for good movement at AIGA, I listened to Gabby talk about her, about data. And I realized how, how much I needed to, if I was going to actually really be invested in, in change in community or in community impact, I needed to step up my data game and internalize the data processes in such a way that it's sort of second nature. So it's sort of like playing scales on a guitar. You know, you just practice and practice and practice until you don't have to think about it anymore. So when you see it, when you feel it, it's in without having to dissect it. And that's another person who, you know, who's in a similar space that I look up to a lot. Is there a project out there that you would just really love to to take on or really love to do that you haven't gotten a chance to do yet? Nope. <laughs> to be honest, I, I thought about it for a second. And the answer is, is no, I don't really dream much about what's coming down the road. What I'm working to do is stay really present in what I'm working on right now. And what I'm realizing is the more connected I am to stuff that I'm working on right now, the more kind of leads to these other opportunities. So I'm not entirely sure what's coming down the pike by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that when it gets here, it's going to be a much more interesting thing than I could probably even imagine. So I stopped imagining it. So it kind of sounds like you're pretty satisfied creatively. I'm super happy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm super happy. I remember the story that I wanted to share with you. So there's a, a new thing that we're doing. So we've understood nonprofits and how they function from the outside. What we're working on right now is actually developing a deeper understanding and a deeper empathy for what the bulk of our clients' experiences are by working from the inside. So we're in the process of, of taking a look at needs in the community that aren't being met, and we're starting our own 501c3s. And nice. This January, we started our first one, though technically I can't really call it a nonprofit because we just started it and haven't filled out any of the paperwork to make it a nonprofit yet. We just felt that urgency that, that I was referencing earlier and just decided, okay, let's get this thing going and then we'll figure out the grant funding and we'll figure out the nonprofits, the filing of paperwork, et cetera, later. I was working on a, on a number of, of community projects throughout the city of Hartford, and we found that a, a lot of sort of recent graduates who are painters or sculptors or, or illustrators weren't doing any work. You know, they were out of school for about, for less than a year, for about a number of months. And I could get that once you graduate, then you're in the summer mode and you're maybe looking for a job or something. And so the painting or whatever it is takes a, a back seat. But we had gotten well beyond that, you know, back into like the September, October groove when they would ordinarily be back in school painting and they weren't doing any. So I started engaging in conversations about why that's so. And what I realized is they have no space. They're living in apartments with a bunch of people, so it's not like they're going to crack open the linseed oil in the turpentine, you know. And when they were in school, they had these studios that where they developed series that they were working on that were large scale, and they just don't have the physical space to do this work anymore. So we gathered a group of them together and said, like, listen, we'll take out some space for you, some beautiful space actually for you uh, with great light, 20, I think there are 28 foot ceilings and you pop in and your job is to paint. Don't worry about how it gets covered. Uh, we're working out relationships with artist supplies to get them artist supplies fully funded. And, and their job is to, to come in when they're not working and just crank out work in exchange we're developing a, a sort of 360 mentoring program where they'll go to local high schools and, and talk to, to recent graduates, to, to students in their senior year who might be interested in going to art school and sharing with them what it's like and giving them the inspiration and the motivation to do that. On the other end of the spectrum, we're bringing in folks who are gallery owners and curators and, and you know, who work in museums and private collections. And they're popping in on a quarterly basis and, and sitting with this group and mentoring them to be show worthy. Where do you sort of see yourself in the next five years? Like with the work that you're doing now, I mean, a collab will be turning 30 or actually be over 30 yeah, at that point. Yeah. What do you see yourself doing? I see myself. I see the organization growing, deepening what they're doing. And uh, I see the organization getting more involved in, in the actual community organizing as opposed to being a supporter and a partner in community organizing. That's some of the that's I'm taking actually a workshop the first week of May, full week immersive workshop in community organizing. 
and I see us being more a part of of connecting these dots even deeper in that way so that the, the, the actual physical design work that we do is that much more connected to the community. And my role I see once we get that established is to uh, shift to be more of an instigator. That's what I'm sort of preparing myself to do right now, to see a need in the community, to not wait for the need to come to us, but to see a need and to be in a position to fill that need in a matter that, that's inspiring that, and that motivates folks and that helps anybody out there who, who sees a similar need to say like, oh yeah, we could do that. And if there's any way that, uh, that we could stimulate an attitude of, oh yeah, we can do that in the community at large, I'd be delighted to be a part of that. Sounds good. Well, you know, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience, you know, find out more about you, about CoLab, about the work that you're doing? Where can they find all that online? Well, you can go to our website at collabing.com. Uh, we're knee deep in getting a new one up there. A really good place to find to find me, to find us, is actually on Facebook. I'm pretty active there. And you could just uh, Google my name, Richard Holland, and just friend the way. I think everybody, I would venture that everybody who's going to be listening to this broadcast is someone that I'd consider a friend. And through that, you could also get to our Collab Facebook page, which is Collab Inc. Facebook backslash Facebook.com backslash Collab Inc. We're on Twitter, Collab underscore Inc. And I'm pretty sure I have a profile on LinkedIn, but I really honestly don't pay any attention to that thing. <laughs> All right. Well, Rich Holland, thank you again for taking time out of your day. I know we're we're recording for people that are listening. We're recording on a Friday, so you didn't work today because your your business you only work four days a week. Is that right? That's us. We just work four days a week, just get into flow for four days, and then everybody gets a three day weekend, hang out with family, go experience the world, bring something cool back to the office on Monday. Nice. Well, yeah. Again, I know you're off today, but thank you still for taking time. To just kind of speak with me about how CoLab got started, why focusing on these social value projects is so important, I think, not just to the business, but to you personally. I think that this is something, as we see kind of what society looks like these days, I think that more designers are starting to realize that they can use their talents to get involved in, you know, civic ways or get involved in these kind of bigger issues that are not just about the next cool app or the next cool project. I think we're starting to see more designers go into that. So it's good to see that you kind of have been on the forefront of this for nearly 30 years. And it's, it's to me, I mean, as a business person and as a designer, it's just inspiring to kind of hear your story. So thank you again so much for taking time out. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thoughts of And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Rich Hollins and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Rich and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design, and they care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that really manifests itself in a number of different ways, like building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. 
Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Sign up for a free account today, MailChimp.com. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. If you really dig the show, please leave us a rating. It really does mean a lot. Not only does it help us get new listeners, it helps us kind of move up the podcast rankings for design. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 a month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.